Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have preserved and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent, and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly, and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. And to the church, the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into a great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. 
Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And to you who overcomes and keeps my works unto the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This morning we get to the third of the seven churches in Revelation, the church in Pergamos. The way Christ reveals himself to this church, we find in Revelation 2.12. These things, says he who has a sharp two-edged sword. Now again, these are all portions, parts, components of the vision that we had of Christ in chapter 1. We saw in verse 16, he had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Now, what does this sharp two-edged sword, this type or picture, point to? Well, as we're going to find, although there are some exceptions in this book, Most of the typology in Revelation is actually fairly easy to discern because it's scripture interpreting scripture. Uh, For the most part, these things are to be found or defined in other parts of scripture, and that's certainly the case with the sharp two-edged sword. It's defined in Ephesians 6.17, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Uh, The reason why it's called the sword of the Spirit in this case, obviously God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but it's particularly the spirit that inspires the word of God and also illumines it. And so if the word of God is working, if it has that sharp edge, it is precisely because the spirit is the one giving it that power. And also in Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and tents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So therefore pointing again to the sharp two-edged sword and its power and its characteristic as laying bare the thoughts and intents and also of performing that which God commands it to do. So this is the sharp two-edged sword, and this is the way that he reveals himself to this church in Pergamos. And the question is why? What is so particularly relevant of the word of God in its piercing nature and in its sharp and two-edged attributes? What's so appropriate here? Well, this church seems to be playing loose with the faith. They had held firm under the obvious and direct threat of lethal persecution. In the days in which Antipas, my faithful martyr, was killed among you, they had held fast to the faith. And Christ commends them for it. But it would seem that under the more subtle temptation of a little compromise, some of them were giving in. Now, it does not explicitly say precisely that which they were doing, so there is an element of uncertainty But putting two and two together from what the description is in terms of this doctrine of Balaam and the way it's described, it would seem that perhaps there were those who were encouraging people to participate in festivals that were idolatrous, festivals that were to pagan deities. Now this church, 
unlike some others, did not need to be reassured in what they were doing. They needed to repent. And that's the word that Christ has for them in verse 16. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and fight against you with the word, with the sword of my mouth. So these three points then, these points which would seem to be the points that Christ had for that church in Pergamos, is one, you have been faithful. Two, but you tolerate false teaching. And three, repent. You have been faithful, but you tolerate false teaching. Repent. And so our first point, you have been faithful. We read in verse 13, I know your works. Remember that Christ knows everything that we have done. And he does not forget these works. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. There is no injustice in Christ. We must know that. Christ is perfectly just, perfectly holy. Injustice is as far from his mind, as far from his deeds as the east is from the west. He willingly acknowledges this very commendable record. Now, no doubt, whatever they did was because that he had enabled them to. We know that any good thing that we do, anything that pleases God is through faith, and it's done by his power, enabling us to walk in the right way that we should. But even so, he is acknowledging this good record of being faithful. Now, we notice that their faithfulness was where Satan's throne was. It says, where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And then at the end, where Satan dwells. And these things pointing first to Satan's power and authority and then to his particular presence in a place. Now, there's some implication that we have from the sort of uh, extra-biblical record that this place, Pergamos, was a place where the pagan cult was particularly strong, that there was a particular attachment to these things, a particular pride in there being uh, temple stewards of guardians of particular imperial cults. And so maybe that's part of it. But again, we never have to rely on what we have outside of the Bible. We always have, again, Scripture to interpret Scripture. And surely this idea of where Satan's throne is is a reminder of what we have in Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6, where we have the whole armor of God, you know. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness. Appearances aside... Our enemy is not in the things that we can see, and not, not in the, the people that we can see. That's not really the heart of what we're fighting against. It's rather this satanic, evil power in the world. And it's represented here by Satan's throne. So Satan had his throne there. He had a particular stronghold. His power was strong there in his false religion. But that didn't stop them. That's the thing you see. You would think... Surely, of, of all places in which these people might have been overwhelmed by this threat of a, a persecution, it would be where st- Satan was stronger. But that's not the case, because Christ is even stronger than Satan. And these people had been faithful to Christ, even when Antipas was being martyred. Now, we don't know a single thing else about Antipas, but we know all that we need to know, that he stood fast and was willing to be put to death for his faith. Now, Let's think then about the purpose and intent of persecution. 
As you probably know, the Roman government didn't really care all that much about which religion the people held. They didn't really care. There were, any, they were remarkably tolerant in that way. Any number of local pagan deities, any number of mystery cults that had come in, any number of traditional religions, it didn't matter at all. As long as they were good citizens or good occupied people, as the case may be, they could believe what they want. Now, there's a little caveat in there because part of the definition of being a good citizen or other sort of member of the, of the occupation of the empire means that A, you couldn't antagonize other religious groups and B, you had to participate just a little in the imperial cult. Couldn't antagonize those other religions and had to participate just a little every once in a while in that imperial cult to show that you were a good citizen, a good member of the empire. Now the problem with those two things is as wonderfully generous and as tolerant as it might appear to be, that other than that you can do what you want, you can believe as you want, a good Christian could never do either one of those things. Because you know that the apostles and the rest of the church were always speaking the truth and love to those around, and that would inevitably antagonize the Jews, wouldn't it? And the Jews would come running to the Romans to have them persecuted. Or when Paul, for instance, was in Ephesus, we were just talking about Ephesus, and he was saying that these little these idols aren't real gods. There's a one true and living God. And you guys are worshiping these idols of silver and gold, and that's wrong. And what do you know? That would antagonize the idolaters there in Ephesus. Greatest Zion of the Ephesians. How dare this man call into question our religion. We live in Rome. Everyone gets to believe what they want. And this man is offending me with his talk that there's only one true living God. So they defend the Jews. They defend the pagans. And moreover, they would not participate in that imperial cult. Not once a year, not once a life, not ever. Not, never would they say that Caesar is Lord. Now again, in their mind, you just say Caesar's Lord. Just do a little incense. Just do this. Cross your fingers if you want. We don't care. Just participate in the thing that we have set up for this society. But the problem was, they knew that Christ was Lord. And they knew that it was spiritual adultery to participate in those things. That however sincerely or un insincerely that they were held by the people who were organizing them, that there was a real and vital connection to pagan idolatry and they could never participate in those things. So, the response of Rome is, well, we're going to have to put some of these Christians to death. Now, again, their idea is, since they don't really care, they just want, to, they just want the threat of persecution to put everyone else in their place. If we just kill one or, or another of their most outspoken leaders, maybe we'll get the rest of them to shut up and to start behaving. Because that's what they wanted. They didn't want to exterminate these good, law, otherwise law-abiding, economically productive citizens. They just wanted them to do the things that were expected and to, to stop antagonizing people with their, their talk of this one true religion and Christ being the only Lord. And so the idea is we'll just kill one of these leaders and then everyone else will, will stop doing what they're doing and be fearful. But you know, the amazing thing is that they, they didn't work. Antipas was killed among them, and that didn't stop them in the slightest. They maintained their faith, and who knows what persecution they endured. I'm sure they endured much other persecution, short of being martyred. 
That's an amazing thing, that they were faithful to his name. They did not deny Christ's faith even in the days in which Antipas was a faithful martyr. So that's a very good thing. That is a good indication of the basic situation of that church, and we should give thanks to God for it. Now, one would think that such a church, that in the very throne, the place where Satan dwelled and had his seat of power, and where the Roman government had determined that they were going to let the hammer fall blow, the, the hammer blow fall and, and, and uh, to strike out against these, these Christians, that having refused to compromise in that, that they could stand everything. But the funny thing is that having refused to compromise on this basic point, sadly, they were yet subject to another kind of, pers- uh, to another kind of compromise. And that's our second point. But you tolerate false teaching. It says in verse 14, I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. Now, we're going to try to understand what this doctrine of Balaam is, but the main thing, the thing that we, we need to keep in mind here is that there was compromise going on and that that compromise was being tolerated by the church as a whole. Now, there are in fact two different false teachings mentioned, both Balaam and the Nicolaitans. But I think that is probably just one thing. He's explaining it using it a type. You know, just as he had the two-edged sword, but that's pointing to the word of God. Well, here I think he's using the doctrine of Balaam to point to what the, do- the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And those things are probably the same. That's why in verse 15 it says, Thus you have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now to understand though what he's getting at, we have to look at the Old Testament story of Balaam. And perhaps you know the first part of that story in Balaam. It's chronicled in Numbers 22, 23, and 24. And so a good portion of that whole book of Numbers is taken up with this notion of Balaam. Now Balak was the king of one of these pagan nations, And he hired a seer, a holy man, Balaam, to come curse the Israelites as they came into the land. But you know the story. It includes the talking donkey even. That the Lord, through various means, forbade this man to curse them. And in fact, he turned that curse into a blessing. And it's a wonderful story about how God can make even turn cursing into blessing for his people. It says in Deuteronomy 23.5, Nevertheless, The Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. Wonderful. But that isn't the end of the story. So there's this frontal attack. Stand up on a mountain and curse these people. That didn't work. Then there's something else. In the very next chapter, in chapter 25, there's a different tact says this, Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to sacrifice to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. And so Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. You see how it goes. Having failed in this frontal attack, having failed then militarily as well, Moab couldn't conquer this great people that were coming into the land. What they do is, in a more subtle way, they send some, some girls to invite their people 
to their pagan sacrifices. You come to live among the wonderful. Let's be good neighbors and come to our pagan sacrifices. Now, who is behind that wise idea? Wise in an evil way? Well, it's explained for us in Numbers 31, actually. 31.16. These women caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor. So, his initial situation having failed, he then counsels, well, let's try a more subtle way. And we'll have some of our attractive young ladies go and invite the men to participate in our pagan festivals. And thus, without even thinking about it, under this more subtle thing, the people attach themselves to a false god named Baal of Peor. And mission accomplished then for Balaam. Well, what's the connection then with the Nicolaitans? What do these things have in common? Why could the doctrine of the Nicolaitans be described as a doctrine of Balaam? Well, it says in verse 15, Thus you have also those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. And you remember, by the way, that Ephesians, loveless though they may have been as a church, yet they had this one thing, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which also I hate. So this is not an uncommon situation at that time. This is a, seems to be a widespread problem in the churches. Well, what is this doctrine of the Nicolaitans? Well, in a very similar situation to the, what, what happened in Balaam so very long ago, it would seem that having stood, against, stood firm against this very hardline persecution and martyrdom, they then succumbed to some people who were saying, you know, maybe it's not such a bad idea to show up every once in a while to these pagan festivals. We're not being coerced anymore with the threat of a sword, right? But, you know, it's going to be to our benefit if we do that. We'll show ourselves to be good neighbors if we do these things. You know, of course, beyond the idea there are going to be civic pagan festivals in which there is the imperial cult, and you're going to certainly you're going to cast suspicion on you and the rest of your religion if you didn't at least show up to that. But then also there were trade guilds that also had these pagan festivals. And if you didn't show up to that, you were going to be disadvantaging yourself economically. We would call it, you know, opportunities for networking or something like that today. And they were saying, now we're causing ourselves unnecessary problems by being such stick in the muds here we know that these pagan deities aren't true. We know there's, there's no Zeus. He's not real. What difference does it make if we participate in these things? That, to the best of our knowledge, is what the Nicolaitans were teaching. Well, then, what we're talking about is compromise. It's compromise. That's, that's what it is. We're no longer talking about standing firm under these, this hard-line persecution which is a sort of um, the stick, you know, the stick that the world has. Rather, we're talking about the carrot. Again, that was a sort of the honeypot of the, of, the, of the original doctrine of Balaam, was at being attracted into compromise rather than being uh, uh, forced into it. Now, the extent of that problem, notice that Christ does not say that the entire church believes those things, the problem is that some of them did. It's not that every last person in this church believed that false thing. Some of them didn't. Some of them knew that that was wrong. 
But the problem was that they weren't being called to account in that church by the elders or by any mechanism. And that's very similar to the situation we have in 1 Corinthians 5. We have this uh, situation of great sexual immorality, this man committing incest. It's not the whole church, but the problem is that the church has done nothing about it. In 1 Corinthians 5, 6, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens a whole lump? And the idea of leaven is not much. It's just a little, little bits of, and you don't put in too much. All you have to do is put in a little into a great big lump of dough and it leavens the whole lump. Well, the point is that sin, compromise, false teaching left unchecked in a church, it does not need to be 90% of the church involved in it. It just needs to be this much. Left unchecked, eventually it will infect the whole church. That is why Christ has put into place all the authority structures and mechanisms in order to keep his church pure in this way. And the problem was for the church in Corinth, they didn't, know, they didn't care enough to do anything. And the problem is apparently the church in Pergamos said they didn't care enough to do anything either. What they're being called to do is to purge out that old leaven. And so that's why it says in, in our third and final point, Repent. It says in verse 16, repent, or else I will come to you quickly and fight against you with a sword of my mouth. Now, think about the, re- the recipients, I suppose, of this call to repent. Who is it? Notice that he's already said in verse 14, I have a few things against you. And that's singular. I have a few things against you. And he's speaking to the angel or the messenger of the church. And possibly... Possibly that's referring to the minister as a singular representative of the whole church. I have a few things against you. And the command to repent is likewise in the singular. Repent. Not everyone holds this doctrine. Not everyone is involved with this idolatrous compromise. But it is the church's messenger and therefore the church as a whole that is called upon to repent from this thing. Now, you understand there. You see, we've spoken more than once about the corporate nature of joining yourself to a church. You see, yes, it is true that in many ways God deals with us as individuals, but there are other ways in which he deals with us as a whole church. And when you're joined as a church body, well, first of all, you're joined to Christ, but you're also joined to all the, the problems of a church. And there can't be Problems that you're not in, the, in our church that each of us are not affected by. And likewise then, even though that messenger himself, and likewise the church as a whole, maybe they didn't hold to this doctrine, but they are yet being called upon to repent because of this. Now, in point of fact, we have to, we have to admit that the history of the church actually repenting of their heresies and errors has been extremely slender. You go back into church history and you look at churches that have fallen into compromise, false doctrine, and, and just try to come up with a number of churches who have repented of that and have come back to the true faith. How many? A few? Yes, praise God. But I wouldn't say that the, the history is all that encouraging. The vast majority never do. The Lord fights against them with the sword of his mouth. The candlestick is removed. And they either die off entirely because people don't eventually stop going to a dead church where the word of God's not being preached. 
Or they just carry on as a, a sort of zombie church that has the appearance of life, but they're dead. But yet, they were called to repent. Christ may know that they're not going to repent. We don't know the history of this case. But the day of mercy is given to them that they ought to. Now, he says he's going to fight against if they don't repent. He's going to fight with them with the sword of my mouth. Now, notice it's a sharp sword. No doubt the Nicolaitans spoke in soft, attractive words. You find that in the Old Testament, the false prophets had soft things to say. And the people said, don't prophesy to us hard things and harsh things. Give us soft words, things that we want to hear, attractive things. And no doubt the Nicolaitans spoke in these soft, attractive ways. No doubt they were capable of fine subtleties. But Christ's words are not like that. Christ's words are not like that here. He says, repent. He doesn't need two paragraphs to say it. He says, repent, because that's what they need to do. And they could say, wait, wait, it doesn't mean not all of them have to repent, do they? Repent. But they've got a lot of good things, don't they? And, And in fact, isn't it a good idea to love one's neighbor, right? You can see then kind of the good idea behind this movement, this Nicolaitan movement. You can see it's got good intent. Repent. Clear and sharp. Pointed. To the point. Repent. It's a sharp sword. There is truth and there is falsehood. There is a way of life and there is a way of death. There is right and there is wrong. And that is the nature of God's word. It is sharp. And also it's a two-edged sword. Again, Christ is very just. He's very merciful. The word of God is going to be applied. But notice now there is a change in person. He does say singular repent. But then he says, or else I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Because as that word of God is being applied to that church, the sharp edge that is cutting is going to be applying to those who are in this compromise and not to everyone. He does make a distinction, you see. It's a two-edged sword. It is capable, then, of discernment between those who, who need to repent and those who need to be affirmed. Those who need to have the cancerous uh, growth removed with a sharp edge and also those who need to be healed and restored and affirmed. It is capable of doing both of those things. It's a sharp sword. It's a two-edged sword. Now, in what way, then, is this different? You might say at this point, okay, now you want to do something with these false teachers. You've just said about this evil Roman empire who is persecuting them. What is the difference here? Is not the church just going to be persecuting these poor false teachers? Well, I want you to know that there is a great big difference between those things. It wasn't that Rome was in the wrong for being intolerant. That's not the problem. You see, first of all, the problem here is with regard to those who call themselves Christians. We don't go around as a church uh, persecuting those outside. The problem is those who call themselves Christians and who take upon themselves to teach the people. That's the problem. And the church's response is entirely different because it's not at all about force. It's not about coercion in any kind of way. It's not even about that sort of false um, a, a way of um, soft bringing people into things that they're not aware of, that Balaam did. It's not of those things. 
It's rather the power to change that, the power to do something about that false teaching wasn't at all like this persecution. It was rather the power of the word. It was ministerial. It was declarative. It was the elders preaching and speaking to those people and exercising the spiritual power. And the only the only um, eventual uh, uh, real power in a sense is to suspend them from the Lord's table or ultimately to excommunicate them not by putting anyone in jail or trying to have them killed because you see the point is to keep the church pure on the one hand for the glory of Christ and for the good of his church but on the other hand to bring those people back to the safe and right way that leads to life we're not trying to ultimately do them harm what we're trying to do is bring them repentance because we know that that's the way to life. Well, there could be any number of applications of these things. But I think the first one that we'd mention is just the fact that truth matters. It really does matter. We don't have the option to be indifferent about doctrine. We don't have that option. We might wish that we didn't have to be involved in struggles over these things, struggles to establish the truth, struggles to keep Christ's church pure. You might just wish that we could be entirely relaxed and just let people in the church think as they wish and do as they wish, but you'd be thinking very differently than Jesus Christ himself because Christ does not share that opinion. Jesus says these things matter to him. They matter enough that he's willing to come fight against those who teach error with the sword of his mouth. So we know that Christ is willing to fight for truth. The question is, are we willing to fight for truth? Are we willing, for instance, to do the hard work of knowing what the truth is? That's so much a problem, isn't it? I bet there are those who are susceptible who said, oh, that sounds like a great idea. You know, the Bible does say we ought to love our neighbor. seems so very loving not to show up to their nice festivals. That sounds like a great idea. Well, they needed a more thorough grounding in the word of God to be able to discern the problem with that teaching. So we've got to do that hard work of developing discernment in order to detect error. And also of being willing to stand and be counted they were willing to, be stand, to stand and be counted as Christians. Praise God for that. But they didn't stand and be counted to stand for the orthodoxy, for truth. And then furthermore, are we willing, depending on our situation, of course, this applies mainly to the elders, to hold people accountable for teaching error. Now, you know about tolerance, right? You know that tolerance is perhaps the last remaining Virtue, the cardinal virtue of the unbelieving world. Virtually every sin, and there are few exceptions, few exceptions, can be excused away by the world. But the one cardinal virtue is tolerance. We must be tolerant. Christ says that's your problem, your tolerance. You tolerate among you those who teach error, who lead my people astray. Lead my people in the way that leads to death. There's no virtue in that whatsoever. You tolerate people who hold something I hate. Did you notice that when he said that to the church in Ephesians? I hate this thing. There's no tolerance there. There is mercy. There is grace. But there's no sort of doctrinal indifference which we call tolerance. 
You have no right to do that as my people. Someone's got to go. Not that they need to go. They need to repent, hopefully. Well, I'm not going to be forever a part of this church. Eventually, he takes away the lampstand and he leaves such people to their own devices. Truth matters. Secondly, separation from the world matters. Now, the specific instance of that false teaching, as we've already seen, seems to be, again, it's not in so many words, but it seems to be that it's okay to participate in things that the world does, even if there are connections to false religions. And you can imagine, again, why people might see, why unnecessarily offend people. We know that there are no real pagan deities. Diana doesn't exist. Why should we fear to be a part of some Dionysian festival? Well, first of all, I would say, in general, it is not our situation to come as close to the world as we possibly can. Sometimes people think that Christ has given a commandment when he says, love your neighbor, that that means be just like as much as your, your, your non-Christian neighbor as you possibly can. And that's not what he says. In fact, what he says in 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, what he's saying is not to not love people. Do you understand the difference there? Love people, don't do what they do. If you love them, particularly, you're going to show them a better way. Love them, don't do what they do. So you cannot then draw the false connection to the only way you can love the people around us is to do precisely what they do because that is not the same thing. Don't love the world. Don't do as they do. And listen to what James says. He, of course, in little harsher tones, James 4.4, 4, adulterers and adulteresses. Remember again the connection with sexual immorality because our husband is Christ. We are married to Christ. And when we go to pagan festivals, we marry, we are adjoined to some pagan deity. That's the problem. That's adultery. Adulterers and adulteresses do not, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You see, you cannot be a friend in that sense of doing, wanting what the world wants, doing what the world wants, and thinking along the same ways as the world does, participating in all their things, and yet be a friend of God. It's impossible. That does not mean we shouldn't love the people. Of course we should. Now, so more directly then, the separation of the world matters, but making it a little bit more direct... We must particularly have nothing to do with activities and holidays that have real connection with false religion, and above all, certainly not those that have any overt connection with Satan. Now, what day is today? It's the 30th of October, isn't it? Halloween. Halloween. What do we do about Halloween? All attempts to say other things, all attempts to make it seem other than the case, Halloween is a pagan holiday. It really is. And it's all about the occult. It's all about witchcraft and mimicking satanic ritual. There's no prettier face to put on it. I don't know what we can say. All you have to do is go down to the local store and what do they have there? What sort of things? Elements of satanic ritual. That's the whole point. Make it as scary and as demonic as you possibly can. 
You have the wailing demonic sounds. You have ghosts. You have, you have witches and you have the rest of it. Why? Because that's what it is. What then should we do as we seek to love our neighbors? Don't participate in Halloween. That's the best way that you can love your neighbor is to show them a better way. The best way that you can do that is speak the truth in love and to tell them the truth about Jesus Christ. I'm not going to say exactly how we accomplish that. But one thing I know is that Halloween is not something that Christians should be participating in. Now, thirdly, there's a warning to false teachers, to would-be false teachers in this church. I think it is right when we consider the reality that Christ is holding this church accountable for allowing some, tolerating some, not all, but some in the church to teach false things. I think it is a right thing to say that false teachers are not going to be tolerated here. Lord willing, false teachers will not be tolerated here. Now, of course, that does not mean that we have some sort of thought police. Of course, we do not mean that it's some sort of propaganda and, and a KGB situation like uh, Soviet Russia. And you know, by the way, that the only, the only qualification to come into membership is faith in Jesus Christ. There are people here who believe very different things. The only ones who have to believe the whole Westminster Confession are the officers of this church. That's not the issue. The issue is specifically acting as a teacher to lead people astray, to bring them into your way of thinking that is contrary to the things received by this church. And that's the problem. Now, of course, no false teacher ever thinks that what he's teaching is false. No one ever does. And of course, every false teacher thinks that what they're teaching is from the Bible. Every heretic has his text. I don't know if you've heard that little word, that little phrase. But it is up to the elders not to tolerate false teachers. It is the only way, therefore, that we can be faithful to Christ. And it is the only way that we can protect this flock. We don't want Christ to come fight against this church with the word of his mouth. And we know that it is only through this word, the purity of the gospel, that people come to saving faith in Christ. It is the only thing that is given to us. It is a means of grace by which they are saved. It's a life and death matter. And therefore, when it comes to upholding Christ and protecting his word and protecting his sheep or being nice to a false teacher, well, I'm afraid that the being nice to the false teacher is going to lose out. So the false teachers are hereby served warning. Fourthly and finally, there's a question because this is not all about doom and gloom. Even when he calls that church to repent, there is a good news. There is gospel in it. And that's the section we haven't gotten to. That's the section we haven't mentioned. What it says in verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Now again, we could be bedazzled by the imagery and, and not see what it's saying. 
But I want you to see what it's saying. What is this stone? What does it mean? Well, all throughout Scripture, we see Christ in his purity and his holiness being described as white. We've seen it in Revelation thus far. It's a description in Revelation 1, this, this piercing, beautiful, white radiance. It's Christ in his holiness. And what about the stone? Can we look anywhere in Scripture and find out what the stone means? Well, Matthew 21:42 says, Jesus said to him, Have you never read the Scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. Or in 1 Peter 2, 4, coming to him as a living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious. What's the white stone that he's going to give to you? It's Christ himself. What else does God give us other than Christ? What more could he give? What more could we desire other than Christ himself? And the only question is, do you have this white stone? Has Christ given you this white stone? That's the question. Because in Acts 4.11, as it's saying, this stone which was rejected by you builders, meaning the Jews, which has become the chief cornerstone, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's, by the way, why we guard this word of God. That's, by the way, why we say that not all roads lead to the same place. Not all roads lead to heaven. It's not true. There's one name under heaven given by which we must be saved, and it is Christ Jesus. And he is the white stone, and he is what is being offered to you today. There is salvation and no other. The question, the eternal question, what must I do to be saved? Because truly we have compromised with the world. Truly we have joined ourselves to false deities. Truly we have listened to Satan, whether we believe it or not, in our sins in our false ways, in our false thinking, in our lies. We've listened to him. We've gone his way. But there is hope for us. And the answer to the question in the Ephesian jailer, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. And so the charge is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to receive the white stone that Christ promises to give himself. All you have to do is receive it in faith, and you're saved. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, how we thank you for the power and purity of your word. How it clears our mind of all the rubbish that is there, and how your spirit is able to open our hearts and minds to receive it. Lord God, we are thankful that you give us the pure gospel, that you do not give us false ways and you do not give us in some sort of false tolerance the idea that just any way is okay and all roads lead to the same place. But Lord, you tell us the truth. And we pray, Lord God, that we would receive it. That we'd listen. We'd receive Christ in faith and we'd walk in ways that are pleasing to him. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.